Thanks for downloading today's UW Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen, and today's special guest is Dr. James Kelly, the author of The Crucible's Gift. James, how you doing, mate? I am doing fantastic. Thank you, Josh, for having me on the show. James' voice might sound familiar to you because uh, late last year we had James doing our podcast for the Pursue Inclusion Initiative, and uh, we thought we'd bring James back instead of him interviewing people. We'd get to interview him. He's the author of The Crucible's Gift. So, James, what is The Crucible's Gift about? Well, I think that's a great question. And the, the better way to talk about it is phrasing it in, in personal terms. And so let me talk about the idea of, of the leaders that I think lead best. And there, there are many different shades of this. But the book essentially is, is asking the question, Are do leaders who go through adversity – lead better than those who seemingly have not gone through adversity and this is kind of a loaded question because we all go through adversity on some level all of us the bigger question that comes out of that is how many of us spend time investigating pulling it apart punching it to figure out what that adversity means to me as an individual and how can i use it to be a better person now did you go through much adversity in producing this book Josh, I think my, my life has been one uh, systematic adversity moment after another. This book just happens to be on top of the pile. At the, at the end of the day, what I learned from this book, you know, I, I, t- I tell a story in the book in the first chapter about UWA. And um, I, I think it's a p- powerful metaphor of, of my life in a lot of ways. So just to kind of give some backstory in terms of who I am, you know, I'm actually currently located in the UAE. Uh, working at a university called United Arab Emirates University. And getting my PhD wasn't something that I ever thought was possible. And not only me, but anyone around me ever thought was possible. So (laughs) to cast the stone out to find someone who thought it was possible, I probably would miss like 99% of the time to find that person when I was in my... I had a chance meeting at an event at Portland State University. Uh, I was going to go into the Peace Corps. For those who may not know the Peace Corps, it's kind of this nonprofit that sends Americans out to the world to do good in different communities. And I was going to go do that. But I was at this table having this intense geopolitical conversation with with three of their PhD students and two are from Africa and one was from the U.S. And I walked away thinking, I bet I could do this. Now, I know nothing about getting a PhD in my head. And so I started thinking about where I wanted to go to school and and what I wanted to do. And and fast forward a little bit. I settled on UWA. And when I applied to UWA, I didn't get in initially. I didn't get a no, but I didn't get a yes. But what I did is my famous tactic of being pleasantly persistent. And I, (laughs) I I called every single week for roughly six to eight weeks. In fact, I think it was longer than that, probably about three to four months. And I would talk to a woman named Lee Harahan. I think I said that right. She no longer works there. She's on, in Queensland now. Uh, and I would call her every week. Any news? What's going on? Can I get you more information? Oh, great. And I would always chit-chat with her. And she would get slightly annoyed, but I'd always try to make her laugh at the end of the conversation. So at least I ended on a positive note. And so finally, I think everyone relented because I showed my intent of wanting to go there. And I got in. And so, you know, when you're going international, there's a whole host of paperwork that you have to do. So I land, I land in, in UWA or in Perth, uh, January, I think it was like January 18th, 2006. And I go to St. Thomas's dormitory to stay the night there. I had nowhere to stay. And I get up the next morning, and I can't tell you the amount of doubt 
despair and depression that I had. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go for a run. You know, I don't know where I'm going. I just kind of looked at a, a map. This is before Google Maps. And I said, okay, I'm going to run down this street. And uh, I'm blanking out the name of the street. It's the one that goes towards Cottesloe, um, right outside the university <clears> there. Oh, Sterling Highway or Mountain yeah. Bay Road? Yes, yeah. Ster- Sterling Highway. And so I start running. And, you know, I, I don't know, Josh, if you've ever been through this moment in your life where every negative voice possible comes together at one time in a crescendo to almost push you back. And, and this is what I was going through. You know, I didn't have the confidence and the belief in myself. And so as I'm going, each step I'm kind of getting slower and slower and more negative, and I'm using all sorts of choice words, uh, both uh, profanity-laced and non-profanity-laced in this, in this run. And also I get to the crest of this hill, the top of Sterling Highway, and I remember this so vividly that uh, as always it was a it was a crystal blue day there in terms of the sky was crystal blue crystal blue was dark blue and so as i look my eyes peer out to the horizon i see the indian ocean i see the trees and i get the smell of the ocean and all of a sudden it was like this weight was lifted up off of my shoulders and put on the ground and every step after that i just felt like i belonged i felt like i could do it and i felt affirmation about the choice that i made now mind you i'm 30 years old so I'm doing a mid-career. It's a lot of change that I guess you probably brought on yourself. And is that probably what caused a lot of the angst? I think so. I think so. And I, but I think, you know, the backdrop is I, I was a crap student. Like I, I didn't understand what learning was when I was an undergrad. Uh, the only reason why I felt remote, remotely confident is that I got a, a, a decent grade mark in my MBA program. That's it. Um, and I thought, okay, well, I have some, some practitioner competence at least. So that was the only thing I held on to. I mean, in the U.S. system, we have a zero to four point scale in our grading. And I graduated with a 2.5, which is average at best. Um, I, I was not a good student. So, so taking that idea, and this is you know, a longer version of this, but taking the idea of adversity, I thought to myself, that, that's one of many for me. I wonder if other leaders had the same idea and the same problem and what did that do for them? And so based on my podcast, Executives After Hours, I interviewed 140-plus leaders across 140 different industries uh, and companies and and positions from CEO to C-suite all the way down to entrepreneurs. The largest company I interviewed was a guy from Google X, so a Google company, so Fortune 2. What I found consistently is that leaders who embrace their adversity, and I, and I use the word framing, you know, often when something happens to us, we frame it either negatively or positively. It's, it's really not on, this, it's not on this neutral spectrum. We all have to take it in somehow. And many of us say, what happened to me, right? Why did this happen to me? And it's about you, and you become the victim pretty quick. But what I found is that these leaders at some point decided to take this adversity, not always instantly, in fact, most cases not, but reframe that adversity in a positive way. And ask themselves the better question of what can I learn from this and how can I be a better person? And many of them, myself included, were grateful for the adversity. I think you lo- everybody learns so much from that adversity. You don't necessarily appreciate it at the time, but it's after. And then when you do see the success, you're like, oh, I could, I'm successful because of that adversity. Oh, totally. And, and I think that's a huge point of it, right, Josh? I mean, I'm sure you can look at many times in your life and think in the moment how much did this suck? And then three months down the road, you're like, okay, I get it, you know? And I think the other thing about adversity, by the way, and I just thought about this by looking at the beautiful picture of you and your wife, is that adversity is not always negative. 
See, the word diversity has this negative connotation, but getting a PhD was positive. Getting married was positive. Having four lovely kids was positive. They all were trying in the moment, but they're all positive events. It's interesting that you put it that way because you said the adversity does have that negative connotation there that normally adversity and positivity, they don't necessarily mesh together. <laughs> no, totally. I, th I think that that is the challenge that we have is that we don't take time to honestly look at the positive moments and how we change and grow in those moments as well as the negative. It just takes so the negative of, a lot of times to, to, to jar us into thinking. So out of those 140, I guess, leaders, how many of them are, are in this book? And I mean, are there a couple that you took a lot away from where you're like, I've learned so much from the time that you spoke <laughs> with him? Because I mean, 140 people, that's a lot, that's a lot of uh, information to download. <laughs> so in the book, there's roughly 45 different leaders that I cite take quotes from. So have you annoyed the, those that haven't made the book then? Is, are you worried about that? That's well, going to bring some adversity for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, if they pick the book up, maybe. No, it doesn't because, you know, not everyone – you can't include everyone in everything. And, and I'm trying to tell a narrative. And so, you know, in, in each subsequent chapter after the introduction, I start with talking about the idea of what is the crucible? How do we define the crucible? There are different levels and types of crucibles. And then we move on to this idea of, okay, well, what happens out of the crucible? And, and what I found is that certain leaders were better at talking about their self-awareness than other leaders. And then what, what, what really – I came to this idea of what's called an authentic leadership model. It starts with the crucible and it goes to self-awareness. And then it goes from self-awareness. It goes to, well, you know what? These leaders are actually more compassionate. They're more compassionate towards themselves, which is really important, and more compassionate to those around them. And, and I want to be clear because I think this, these two words get interswitched and intertwined with each other all the time. Compassion and empathy aren't the same. They're on the same line, but they aren't the same thing. And so empathy is I know how you feel. I get it. I've been through it. But compassion is that I get it. I've been through it, and I want to relieve your suffering. And the word suffering is like adversity. It has this negative connotation, and it, and it sounds so so drastic. But I, I imagine today, Josh, while you're sitting in your office, you, you've thought to yourself, man, I'm thirsty. I would like some water. Now, if I'm walking by you, and you say, man, I'm thirsty. I say, no, let me get you a glass of water. I'm relieving that suffering in that moment. It's minor. It's small. But think about the impact that has on you and how you feel about me in the workspace. So just that one brief moment of giving by your coworker has a magnitude of tenfold impact on the larger organization if we all start doing that together. So, And how, how, and how do you do that on a, on a daily basis? In so, your own form of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm a dad, so every day I'm compassionate towards my kids. I try to be. Um, I try to relieve some sort of suffering to myself by giving myself some time alone, working out, uh, running, whatever. Uh, but in, in an organization, it's a conscious effort. You know, I think higher education has two entities. It has the services and it has us academics. Academics sometimes suck. We are, we are individualistically focused on our own achievements and goals. And we sometimes don't play nice with other people. I'm not saying I'm that person, but I've been in the environment for 10 years. So I have a bit of a sampling to that. And we live in a silo. But what I try to do um, through this process of, of being compassionate is I do it in a different way, which comes out later in the book. And I t it's this concept called relatableness. And it's a philosophy that these leaders have. And the philosophy is this. If I can, when at all possible, meet you, my colleague, coworker, supervisor, subordinate, whatever, where you're at in your journey and create a micro moment of meaning for you, 
then in that way, I'm giving you a moment of joy in your life. And so for me, that's how my compassion shows and relieves their suffering because sometimes people are having a bad day. And if I can make them laugh and smile, then that's relieving that moment for a second. Do you know, but I guess we... But, but with that point, though, I guess when some people are having a bad day, for a lot of staff, you know, managers and leaders and stuff, they don't necessarily know that their staff member is having a bad day. So I think their actions can definitely impact on someone's well-being in the workplace, can't it? Oh, my God, yeah. I think, again, when you're, crying, when you're trying to create an organizational culture of caring, giving, integrity, um, relationships, the data out there is so clear about organizations that excel at creating these environments and the impact in ROI, productivity, loyalty, turnovers lower, all of the positives that you would get from creating an environment that compassion, integrity, and relationships come first. Money comes second. Because when those are first, and I'm talking things about, and this is very specific to the US, but Whole Foods is, is until Amazon probably bought them and it'll cut every single cost out of it. But, but Whole Foods created that atmosphere. Apple creates that atmosphere to some level. It's getting to be a that pretty big animal. Um, Google's the same way. But when they were in their introductory phases, it was money was second, mission was first. And you know, there's this book called Conscious Capitalism that I'm listening to right now. And it talks about this idea of creating organizations that are capitalistic in nature, but not uh, immoral in behavior. And immoral is a bit of a loaded word, but it's saying it's we can do good, create returns for our investors, and do it in a way that doesn't harm society on the whole. Uh, and again, there's evidence out there with, with companies that perform this way that actually outperform other organizations. You know, there's a study that I that I quote um, in the in the book talking about this idea of wellness in the workplace, right? Creating organ organizational organisms that care about their culture. And, and what this study does, and I'll try to paraphrase it here, is it, it takes the stock market. And there's, an, there's, an, it, there's a bunch of companies that submit applications for this wellness uh, certificate saying that we're a wellness-focused organization. And so what they did is they took these organizations and they ran a simulation, a 10-year simulation with these organizations' stocks going historically to now and then moving it forward 10 years. And the same organizations that weren't in this, didn't achieve this wellness certificate. And what they found is that over a 10-year period, the organizations that focused on the health and wellness, mental well-being, physical well-being of their faculty or faculty, of their, of their staff and employees, outperformed significantly the, the organizations that didn't. And when I say outperformed, I'm saying like 230% greater returns on those companies that focus on the health and well-being of their of their employees compared to the other one that had had a 50 or 150 percent return so if 100 is zero right 100 is zero mark in this example they had a 50 percent gain over a 10-year period part of that is just annual returns normal business growth but, but the companies that focused on the health and well-being had a 230 percent return so 130 percent gain on their stocks if 100 percent is equal to zero in this example and it's slightly confusing but bottom line what it says is that companies and organizations that took care of their people genuinely created healthy, open, transparent, compassionate organizations far outperformed the competition consistently. To me, that seems to make so much sense and wise. <laughs> know, and more, right? com 
more, more companies should be doing it, but why why are companies not, not taking the stance? I mean, I know you, you're talking about uh, in the book, it, it, we're in an era of unauth- unauthentic leaders. I mean, yeah. like, what is an unauthentic leader? I mean, you know, is, 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 it, is it these, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, Instagram ambassadors that, that, that we're dealing with on social media where, you know, they're just uh, putting out a positive message because it's getting because they're being paid for it. Sure. That's a great question, Josh. I appreciate that. I've never had that, that framing from it. So let me define authentic leader and then we can go from there and go to unauthentic. So I think I think there's this concept of authentic leader being this this super gregarious, outgoing, amazing uh, super raw, transparent, saying what they want to say person. And that's not exactly how I'm using it. You know, in the book, I, I purposely don't define it. I want you to define it for yourself. So the way I define authenticity is that you are a leader that is constantly striving to be a better version of yourself every day. And, and to do that means you have to be aware of your strengths and your weaknesses. So to be an authentic, unauthentic leader, to me is taking the opposite of that, saying that you're not attempting to grow and be a better person. You think that you've basically cracked the code, and that code, regardless if it's broken or not, you continue to be the same way. You know, the, the, to me, if you're not changing, you're dying as an individual. Like that's just that's just the way I feel about it, um, and I parse no words with that. I think that there are aspects of us as a human beings that's great, and there are plenty of aspects as a human being that we need to improve as a person. You know, and so for, if you're being unauthentic, maybe you think that money is the most important thing. Maybe you think that relationships are transactional, not transformational. Maybe as an authentic leader, um, you can't create a mission and vision for yourself as well as the organization. Uh, and, and that's all this is teachable stuff. You know, in the book at the end of each chapter, I partnered with two clinical psychologists, one from Penn and one from Columbia, who helped give roughly five to seven activities that you can do to become more self-aware, compassionate, live with more integrity, focus on relationships and things like that. Yeah, I'm just wondering, because one thing that's coming into my mind here is, is everything that you're saying here is, can this stuff change cross cult, across cultures as well? Because, I mean, you're based in the you know, UAE. You, know, you, you studied in both Australia and US, even though it's similar, but still there's a bit of the cultural differences there. Is what you're, I guess, we shouldn't say preaching, but what, what you're discussing in, in the book, is it the same for all cultures? I think with every culture, there's nuance. But I guess what is what is the cost to care about another human being culturally? What is the cost of being honest and transparent? What is the cost of, of, of creating relationships? Now, your point is really valid. I mean, I live in a country where compassion is okay. And I think in, integrity and honesty is there when it serves, not when it doesn't. And relationships are really important in this culture. Relationships are everything in this culture. Uh, and so I, I do think there's some nuance to the context in terms of cultural context. How that plays out, though, I think that you can still, if you have a multicultural organization, you can still create the tenets of that. And it's my belief that as a leader, you know, the do as I say, not as I do model doesn't work anymore. It's, it's do as I say and as, and as I do. And it's really hard to not transform yourself to be in that organization. And if you don't like it, you tend to leave. It becomes self-selective um, in that process. And Yeah, well, I think we're in that type of world now, though, that we are more self-selective, that people are generally 
wanting to work for an organisation, not just for the paycheck, but for that job satisfaction as well. And I think yeah. leadership plays a really, really big part in that. I'm really curious because um, I know we haven't got much time left, but you're, you're very big on, I guess, not defining anything. But I think, you know, one thing, you know, but I also you call and I that a scapegoat, it. by the way. I call that yeah, my scapegoat. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great, great, great way. I know one thing you know, both you and I have done, we've, we've both completed our MBAs. And one of the things that I guess always comes up in the MBA is leadership. But, you know, the question always is, what is leadership? I mean, it's not something that can be defined, can it? So I actually just wrote a blog post uh, about this last week. Uh, and it was the blog post was titled um, "Be Your Be Your Own Velveteen Rabbit," uh, and it comes from, <laughs> okay. and it, it comes <laughs> it comes from a, a book, Velveteen Rabbit. It's a children's book, and I got to tell you, there are a ton of great lessons in children's books, tons. But this is a, this is part of the book. So in this in this in this blog post, I basically say defining a leader is really difficult because we all have different needs and wants in a leader. So to say that a leader is super compassionate might work for some people, not for other. To say a leader is super direct might work for some people, not another. And so the way that I define a leadership is that you know it when you see it because you gravitate towards it. And that leader will have a specific – fill a specific need for you as an individual. You know, Even with great leaders, people will pick out what's wrong with that leader. It's human nature. But I think what really makes certain leaders stand out more than others is that they own what they're not great at. They own it like a, a, you know, a, a well-worn T-shirt from your early 20s when you're out drinking all the time. right? You don't want to get rid of it, and it feels real good when it puts it on. So a leader who knows their negative qualities say, yep, this is what I'm not good at, and I'm okay did with you, that. Did, yeah, did you see much of that when you were studying here at UWM when you were doing your master's and your PhD? What the well-worn T-shirt and drinking, or ah, uh, well, the the, the, the latest. <laughs> you Sorry. know, what I'm sorry. in regards to a leader knowing what what uh, what yeah. guess, you know what they can I, improve on. So when you talk to a lot of executive coaches, you know, you 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 should probably interview Vanessa Verishaw um, there locally. You know, she will tell you when she works with CEOs that the most difficult thing for CEOs to know is their blind spots. Like all of us, you know, what are we not good at? Um, it's, it's the CEOs that are willing to listen to that are the ones that you gravitate towards because the ones that are blinded by their, their negative attributes are the ones that just grate you to bejesus because you're like, how do you not see it? How do you know that you're not good at listening? How do you know that you don't respect other colleagues' points of view and that you don't always have to be right? You know, I mean, these are things that leaders struggle with because sometimes when you're in a leadership role, you have imposter syndrome. And with imposter syndrome, you automatically think you're, the buck stops with you, and it does. But that doesn't mean you have to be right every time. It doesn't mean that you have all the answers. You Is know, it okay is, to be wrong? Is oh it okay God, to yeah. be wrong? Yes. And in fact, I think about the time, and think, I mean, for me at least, and, and, and if you reflect on this and the listeners, a time when leaders come to you and said, you know what? I was totally wrong with that, and I apologize. You know, I, I'm, I've been reading a lot of books by a guy named Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. And Dr. Marshall Goldsmith is the number one leadership thinker in the world. And uh, I've been fortunate enough that he's endorsed my book. And, you know, in his books, he talks about that one of the things that he takes his clients through from the start is an apology tour. Is to go back and apologize to all of those that they've wronged. And his, and his theory is very simple and really positive and impactful. And it's that 
when you apologize to someone for a mistake that you've made, the way you treated them, something you've said, whatever, it automatically breaks down a majority, if not all of the wall that might have been put up in the first place to create some sort of relationship. Because who's going to be angry at you for saying sorry? I can't think of anyone. Oh, maybe your wife. No, I'm telling you, Josh, don't <laughs> quick. Just say sorry. I have learned in 10 years, 11 years of marriage that even when I think I'm right, if I just say sorry, it makes things go so much smoother in my life. I don't have to be right. I have to do right. And, um, you know, it, it's a tough place if you're a super competitive person. You know, I mean, I got to tell you, my family is very competitive. We, we've taught – I realize this might be one of the fundamental flaws of American culture is that we create competitive monsters when they're little. We from and, – and maybe I'm sure they do this in Australia as well. But from a young age, we would tell our kids – how fast can you get dressed? I'll race you. I'll beat you. Race your sister. Do this. Go fast here. How much time does it take you to do this? Like everything's a competition. Now, like my two-year-old, the three-year-old, I guess tomorrow, we'll go up the stairs. She'll go to the top. She'll go, Dad, I beat you. Ha, 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 ha. I'm like, what are we doing to our kids? <laughs> like they're gloating at three about beating me. But can I can – I, there's one thing we haven't talked about that really defines the authentic leader. And, and it's, the, it's the most important thing, I think, out of everything. I mean, self-awareness and crucible are really important. But those are only impactful when a leader has a growth mindset. And you know, I call it a learning mindset, but you can call it growth mindset if you will. Because that is my belief that a leader who's on the journey to educate themselves about themselves, about others, about their field that they're in, uh, about whatever it is they're curious about, those are the leaders who are awesome. Because those leaders don't mind being challenged and having the hard conversations and curious about who you are as a person, the journey that you're on. And I found that with a lot of leaders that I interviewed is they had this insatiable appetite to just learn and grow for themselves and for others. So do you think a lot of these leaders want that lifelong learning? Because I think for a lot of us looking from the outside, you think they've got it all together. They're, you know, they're never wrong. They make the right decision every time. But I don't think people see the behind the scenes stuff where they are continually wanting to learn and upskill themselves in that role. You know, it's one of the things I found really fascinating is I felt like a lot of them almost flipped the script at some point. And what I mean is that they had this desire to learn and grow and then they had – maybe they didn't flip the script. So they led, they led, they led, they led, and they learned and they grew. And then they flipped, and they wanted to give back. And they wanted to, to give people what they learned to them. And in the same note, they loved listening to other people's stories. So maybe they always are lifelong learners. You know, I think it's one of these things that once you see the power in it, it allows you to transform. You know, I think that when you become a parent, when you – ascend to CEO level, you know, if you're not open to the possibility of what if and open to the possibility of transformation, then you're not open to the possibility of a whole lot of growth. And that stunts your ability to be a better person, more importantly. We're nearly out of time, but I want two more questions. Um, second last question I want to ask you is, what's the most underrated leadership skill someone can possess? Listening. I think listening is critical. It's it's funny you said that because I was going to ask you about listening because I do feel like a lot of the times, uh, good and bad, uh, leaders listening is probably one of those things that uh, can always be improved on, I think, for everybody. Yeah, you know, this is something that I that I talk about in the book and there's some exercises that I, that I try to give in terms of relationship building. You know, often, 
I'm guilty as charged. I'm sure you're guilty at different times as well. I'm waiting to talk, not waiting to listen. And, and so, you know, one of the things that I try to do in meetings is listen with intent and be in the moment of what that person's saying. I think that that's really hard to do. The other thing that I, I really try to do, and, and again, not to give a parental reference, but I do this with people as well, so maybe I treat people like children, um, is everyone wants to be heard. And so what you find is that when someone is not heard, they are way more likely to get defensive and angry at you and create conflict. But if they feel heard, and I mean genuinely heard, not falsely heard, then the disagreements are far less than when they feel like you're stonewalling them or you're putting their ideas down or you're telling them everything that's wrong. They just want to be heard. And I think that, that when you accomplish that, so much greatness happens because when you give someone a voice and you let them explain their truth, because we all have our own truth in that moment, in that conversation, with that strategy and that tactic. We all have our own truth. So you want your truth to be heard. And when you let people tell their truths, you have your truths. And if you acknowledge you both have your own perspectives in a healthy way and that both have been heard, the compromise is way easier to get to you know, 80%, 90% of the time. That's some really good advice. And I hope a lot of our listeners uh, take it on that advice because I think we can all listen a lot better. Now, the last question I want to ask is, we ask everyone on this on our podcast this one question, is if you could give advice to a first-year student here at UWA, what would it be? First year versus last year, huh? Um, so I think a first-year student, the most important thing you have to do is enjoy the journey. Like, I think that there's so much stress. And I don't mean enjoy in the traditional college sense that, that might be inferred from that. But I mean enjoy the journey of making lifelong friends. Enjoy the journey of building your relationship and connections. Be open to the possibility of what fate may give you. You know, often we go into I want to be law or I want to be finance. Um, you know, when I was in college, I had three different majors, four, four different majors. Um I was too open. So, uh, but be open to the idea of if you're following the money trail, that trail is going to stop short. And if you're following the passion trail, the, the trail that ignites your curiosity, then that's the trail to follow. It's not easy to do in your first year, for sure, for sure. Um, but stay on the path. You're talking to someone who quit college after a year, who had four majors, who didn't get his PhD until he was 36. But I always felt like I was moving towards something, not away from something. And um, even when you're lost and confused and it will happen, that is great. Lean into it. Embrace it. And ask the tough questions of what are you, what are you afraid of? You know, there's a, there's a mantra that we all go, I go through and I, and, I, and I tell people and we all have these moments. But I say, don't let fear conquer you, conquer your fear. And it's emotional fear, not jumping off a cliff with no parachute. That's just stupid. Um, but, <laughs> but from an emotional standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, you know, lean into that fear because that's where the true gold is. That's where the, that's where the learning happens. That's all the time we have for today. But uh, I really hope we can uh, touch base later in the year and just yeah. to see how the book's going. Now, 
Once again, um, we were talking with Dr. James Kelly, the author of The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. Now, James, where can we find this book? So depending on when this is produced, uh, right now it's pre-sale on Amazon. Uh, you can get the book there. The Kindle copy will be available, I think, this week. So this is the week of the 16th, so April 16th. So sometime this week, if, if this is produced later, it's out, so Kindle version. Uh, and if you're really giddy about the book, there'll be an audio version in the fall. <laughs> so, um, but all on Amazon uh, and Kindle. And uh, just just one little thing about the book that I'm really excited about. You know, I've mentioned one of the recommendations that I got for the book, and I recognize I'm kind of a no-name guy in this space. So I went out of my way to throw this manuscript at people who actually carry weight. And not only did Dr. Marshall Goldsmith recommend the book, who's number one. But a woman named Dory Clark, who's a two-time New York Times bestseller, uh, a gentleman named uh, Bill George. Now, Bill George wrote two best-selling books on authentic leadership, and he endorsed the book. He's a Harvard professor now. A gentleman named Jeffrey Hazlett, who was the former CMO of Kodak. Um, another guy named Lee Cockrell, who was the senior vice president of Disney Resorts. Who else? Um, the founder of IDEO. IDEO is a global product design firm. Uh, the founder of Dennis Boyle also recommended the book. And a guy named John Berghoff. If you don't know John Berghoff yet, you will. Um, he is a genius beyond his years when it comes to leadership and organizational change in terms of the methods that he does. So really proud of the list of people who recommended this book to, to those around them. Well, I think you should be proud of the effort because, I mean, you've got so much going on in your life. You know, you had the podcast, you're raising four children, you're, you know, you're a professor at UAE. And you're writing a book. I mean, how you found the time to do this is beyond me. <laughs> a supportive wife. And, and I will say, by the way, um, and I appreciate that comment, I'm, I am a dad that's very present. So I'm there for dinner every night, um, like 99% of the time. Uh, I pride myself on finding the balance. I'm very focused, uh, and I'm very mission-driven right now. So that's the only way I did it. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. Thank you for downloading today's podcast. Did you know that UWA has alumni networks in Perth, Albany, Canberra, New York, the United Kingdom, Hong Kong, Malaysia and Singapore? You can become an active alumni member and stay connected to your UWA community by visiting the alumni website today. 